0: Good morning. Today we're going to continue in our study of the heart of God. I would say it's a study that would not exist unless God revealed Himself to us. And I think there's a danger in such a study, and the danger is for us to try to fit God into something that we can understand. In other words, we try to fit Him into this human-sized box so that in some way we can comprehend Him or understand, or give Him human qualities. So I want to be careful of that today, and I think we have been very careful of that as we've looked at the Heart of God series uh, here. But God is so much greater than us, isn't He? He is infinite, omnipresent, perfect, and holy. Those are things that I have trouble understanding because I do not comprehend them. I have nothing to compare God too here in this life that we can physically see so while he is greater than us he has chosen to reveal himself to us and do it in several several ways he's chosen to to reveal it to us in his written word his his Bible this Bible right here God reveals to us we've uh, it shouldn't be any surprise to any of you. We've looked at verses that talk about the heart of God, and we've thought about what those verses mean. We've also looked at the book of Hosea and thought about that picture of God with the nation of Israel and his heart towards them. And in some ways, that is a, uh shows his heart towards us, the church, we also know that the heart of God is revealed through the Word, Jesus Christ. Not through through Jesus Christ, not only his actions that we have recorded, but also his teaching reveals a lot about the heart of God. And we thought a little bit about that already, uh, looking at his teaching on the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor, and Lord willing, in December, we'll think a little bit more about how the Lord Jesus Christ reveals God's heart to us. I also think that the heart of God is revealed to us through His creation. As we look outside, as we look at the creation story, I think it reveals some things about who God is, about His heart, how He uh, cares for us. And Lord willing, we'll be looking at that in December as well. There's one more way that I had, uh, not considered the heart of God to be revealed, uh, until, uh, was handed a, a, a book. And that is the heart of God revealed through his attributes. So I spent a lot of time, I think before in preparing, thinking about what's the difference between God's heart and his attributes? Are they synonymous with one another? Like is, his holiness, something that's in his heart? Uh, are they completely unrelated? Um, or is there some connection? A.W. Tozer thought there was a connection so much that he wrote this book that says, A Heart of God, and in the subtitle, probably can't read it, but it says, A Journey into the Father's Heart, which I thought was a, a very uh, interesting subtitle and a, a very interesting topic for us to think about. As we look at God's heart. So today we're going to take a, a very short journey, I'll say, to look at God's heart and think about what his attributes reveal about his heart. And then the second part is uh, that I, I want to think about here this morning is, just as I was thinking about, what is God's heart after? What does his heart desire I think we've been trying to think about that and I have one idea that I'd like to, to share here uh, about what his heart is after. So let's just uh ask the Lord's blessing on this time and for his help. Father, I um I look to you for help and, and guidance. Father, help me to speak your words this morning. I know that the Holy Spirit is here in me and that you are near right now. And so I I thank you for that. I pray for words to speak and ears to hear, for us to not only hear the word, but to apply it to our lives, help it to, to mold us and change us. Father, we we know that we are imperfect beings, and we know that you're a perfect being, but in, in some ways you've called us to be like you. Your word says, Be holy for I am holy. And so, Father, help your word that divides, that helps us to grow, help your word. Uh, to challenge us, and to change us. I, I pray for that here this morning, and um, thank you for uh, just being able to uh, speak here this morning and help me to glorify you in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at seven attributes of God and how the heart of God is revealed in his attributes. So the first attribute I want to look at is God's infinitude. That is, He is infinite. And so I, the way I have this set up is a, just some verses that talk about his attribute in Scripture, uh, and then um, just some thoughts associated to God's heart with each attribute. So the infinitude of God. Psalm 147, verse 5 says this, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Now I can, I can tell you that <laughs> I don't really grasp the concept of the infinite sea of God, right? Um, the easiest way for me to think about this is that he is everything that I am not. I am 5'9", 180. I'm right here right now and it's 1126. Uh, on sunday november nineteenth two thousand twenty three I am at one one five West Galbeth Road here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Tozer says that God is boundless and infinite. he cannot be weighed or measured, he cannot apply distance or time or space to him, for he made it all and contains it all in his own heart. Now I was thinking about that, what does it mean that he contains it all? In his, in his own heart, it means that there is no measure to his grace, no limit to his love. He will fill us and there will always be plenty more. His heart is boundless and can boundlessly provide for whatever we need at any time. So the infinitude of God, secondly, the, the immensity of God, Isaiah 40, verse 12 says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, talking about God, measured heaven with the span and calculated the dust of the earth in measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance, skipping to verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the scale. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. The immensity of God. Tozer again says, God is above all things presiding, beneath all things sustaining, outside of all things embracing, and inside of all things filling. Let me say that again. God is above all things presiding, beneath all things sustaining, outside of all things embracing, inside of all things filling. So just take a second to think about that. He just covered every aspect of a dimensional thought of how God is caring for us. He is presiding over all things. That means He's in control of all things. Sometimes we don't think that. Sometimes we struggle with that thought. But He is in control of everything that is happening And it is happening according to His plan. He's presiding over all things. He is sustaining all things. In Scripture we said that everything is held together by the word of His power. So He is holding everything together. But not only that, as Christians we can think about abiding in Christ, that He sustains us. He is the vine that provides for us. Just some thoughts of he is embracing all things. He is holding it together. And he is filling inside of all things, filling them. And why is he doing these things? He doesn't have to do these things. It's because he wants to. It's in his heart that he wants to do these things. It's in his heart. The infinitude, the immensity of God, the goodness of God, Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good, teach me your statutes. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9 says this, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers, then Psalm 34, verse eight, which is one of my favorite, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good."." I don't think this is original with me. I don't know who said it, but I, I wrote it down. It says, "The goodness of God is our only reason for existence. The goodness of God is our only reason for existence." Tozer in his book says, it is very important that we know that God is good. We read that God is good and doeth good and that his loving kindness is to all his works. God is kind hearted, gracious, good natured, and benevolent in intention. That means that his heart's desire desires good things for us. I was just thinking about that. His heart desires good things for us. This is hard for us at times to accept. Because this life is hard, isn't it? There are things that happen to us that hurt us. And we think, how can a good God allow that to happen? Well, I cannot tell you why God allows these things to happen. Sometimes they're for our good, as He revealed in, in Scripture People had difficulties. But I can tell you that he is good, and he wants good for you. And it's in his heart to do good for us. The next attribute of God is justice. And A lot of times when we think of justice, we think of the act of receiving what is right. But Tozer rightly says justice is not something that God has but something that God is. That's hard that was a little bit hard for me to grasp but justice is not something that God has but something that God is because we think about justice in the, in terms of what somebody gives to us. But Psalm 92 verse 7 says this righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. And we think of justice we can think of it as uprightness uh or morally correct behavior or thinking. Uh, Romans three, if we want to turn there, let's turn there. Romans chapter three gives us some thought about God and justice. So Romans chapter three and verse twenty one. And I'm going to read through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or appeasement of wrath in his blood through faith, that was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at times past so that he would be just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus Christ. God's justice demanded that there had to be a punishment for sin. You see, my sin says that I deserve death. But what I read from this passage is, my Savior, Jesus Christ, came and took my punishment, and He says that I have life. How great is the heart of God to think of a plan like that before time began, before time began. The justice of God. Next is mercy. Psalm 103, verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Joseph says, Mercy has certain meanings. To stoop in kindness to an inferior, to have pity upon, and to be actively compassionate. I think sometimes we gloss over these words, pity and compassion, and don't think about what they mean. Pity is the sympathetic sorrow of for one's suffering, distress, or unhappiness. Sympathetic sorrow for one's suffering, distress, or unhappiness. Compassionate. As have a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress, together with a desire to alleviate it. Now, if you really want to cause your brain to go in overload, think about this. Tozer suggests that the mercy of God never began; it was always, was always there. It's easy for me to see how the mercy of God may have began when sin came, but it says. It was always there. It never began. It's part of who God is. In fact, Tozer says, God's mercy is simply what God is, uncreated and eternal. It never began to be, and it always was. It's not hard to see that the heart of God was kind towards us. He was sympathetic towards our suffering, distress, and unhappiness. And he was actively conscious of our distress and desired to alleviate it. He not only desired to alleviate it, he did alleviate it. He showed us mercy and it's in his heart to show mercy to us. Next is grace. John chapter one, verse 16 and 17 says this, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. First Peter 5.10, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. God is grace. Is part of who he is. Tozer states, God is, grace is God's good pleasure. It is, it is that in God which brings in, brings into favor one justly in disfavor. Let me read that again. It is, it is that in God which brings into favor one justly in disfavor. I don't know about you, but, uh, I think Joe said a, a great truth here this morning. I don't know how we can be in any greater disfavor with God than to be his enemy. And Joe, the truth that Joe Boyette shared this morning is that God's grace is always greater. Always greater than our sin. So let me read a couple of verses that kind of share that. In Romans chapter 5, Verse 10, if you're still in Romans, you can flip over there, but it says this, for if when we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we can see that we are justly in disfavor of God. We are his enemies. We've already thought that we're all sinners. We all deserve death. So there's a, a just Disfavor that we have with God, something that is right that we deserve. Yet, God in His grace, through the death of His Son, reconciled us and saved us. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It goes beyond that. Tozer, uh, observes that grace is infinite. So thinking back to the infiniteness of God, the grace is infinite. God never measures His grace against His justice or His mercy against His love. God is all, all one. But God measures His grace against our sin. And that's where Romans 5.20 comes in, and this truth that huh, our sin can never exceed God's grace. It says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the law was given so that we may understand that we are sinners, understand what sin is. We become more aware of what sin is. And when we become more aware, we realize just how sinful we are. So the law came... The offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace abounded much more. Grace did abound much more than sin. Where sin brought death, we read that Jesus Christ saved us and brought life. We did not just save us, but he's brought us into a position of favor with God. He has made us the children of God if we believe on him. Galatians 3.36 says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What a position of favor that is. So, the gracious heart of God has brought us from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters. Not just saving us from what we deserve, but giving us a grand position as the children of God. Next is omnipresence. Psalm 139, verses 7-10 through says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed into hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The omnipresence of God means that God is all-present. God is everywhere. Not just in this time, but in all time. <laughs> and that's something that I, I definitely can't comprehend. That How can God be present everywhere and in all time, all at the same time? He's always present to help in time of need. He sees all things that are going on, and not just in this moment, but for all-time. He understands how they all fit together. And just thinking about his omnipresence, it's just God's heart is the same towards us since before time began and will be the same towards us after time has ended. But he's not just omnipresent. He's not just out there, something that's impersonal. He's also imminent. Does those same verses have that thought of Psalm 139, verse 7 and 10? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There is this personal aspect that the psalmist has with God, that God is near him, that he is ever near him. So even though he's everywhere, he is also near at hand. So despite God being everywhere in all time, He's also with me in this place and at this moment. God knows what we need and is with us for any situation in life. And out of His goodness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, all these other attributes that we talk about, His heart, He provides for us in those moments of need. He is ever with us. And then lastly, His holiness Exodus fifteen eleven says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? Psalm twenty two, verse three says this, but you are holy, enthroned in the praise of Israel. Isaiah six three, the Seraphim, the one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's almost repeated in Revelation 4, verse 8. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes and all around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God's holiness is probably the most clearly communicated attribute of God. It is also the one that we struggle with the most to understand. A.W. Tozer wrote, When you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of the intellectual grasp, but also the sense of personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. In other words, as the more and more you think about the holiness of God, the more and more you see how unholy (laughs) you are. If you look up the definition of holy, it's probably defined something like this, morally or spiritually excellent. But I think we all understand that that falls short of describing what the holiness of God is. The Greek word has the idea of something that we should be in awe of, something that is awesome, something much greater than ourselves that we are left in awestruck wonder to look at and think about. And yet his heart's desire is for us to be holy, for I am holy, as it says in 1 Peter 1.16. The writer of Hebrews also challenged us to pursue peace with all people, and holiness, Hebrews 12, 14. But that holiness that we pursue is not for salvation. I want to be clear. It is after salvation that we are to pursue to be holy, to show that we are a new creation, to be slaves to righteousness, as it says in Romans chapter 6, to be like our Heavenly Father. God's heart made a way for us to be reconciled to Him, through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how salvation is. But after salvation, God calls us to be like him. I can tell you, uh, it's hard for me to grasp this command to be holy for I am holy. Because again, I just can't comprehend what the holiness of God is like. I can tell you that just up here this morning. I don't think we have even a glimpse of what the holiness of God is like. We should be in awe of Him, awestruck by Him. So let me summarize how the attributes of God show us what the heart of God is like. First, His infinitude. The finitude of God reminds us that His heart is boundless, can boundlessly provide for whatever we need. The immensity of God reminds us that God's heart is presiding, sustaining, embracing, and filling us all at the same time. God being good means that His heart desires good things for us. Him being just Means God's heart is just. My sin says that I deserve death, but my savior, Jesus Christ came and took my punishment and says I have life. God's mercy helps us understand that the heart of God is kind towards us, sympathetic towards our suffering, distress and unhappiness and is active, actively conscious of our distress and desires to alleviate, alleviate our distress. God's graciousness reminds us that the gracious heart of God has brought us from being enemies to God to being sons and daughters of His. God's omnipresence means that God's heart is the same towards us since the beginning of time and will be the same towards us after time has ended. God is eminent, which reminds us that God is always with us, and God knows what we need and is with us for any situation in life. And out of his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his gracious heart, he provides for us in those moments. And the holiness of God has a heart that made a way for us to be reconciled to him through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. So as I thought about these things, I also tried to think about, what is the heart of God after? What does God desire I think, in some ways, desire more than anything else. And I'd like you to to study and think about yourself, but one of the thoughts that came to my mind is God's heart, heart's desire is for our hearts to be wholly devoted to Him and Him alone. If you think about the first sin in Genesis, that it was a desire to be like God, to replace him, to put ourselves in a position that was a place where he wanted, he, he deserves the place of being all that we need. In Genesis chapter 6, we read the first part where we read about the heart of God was grieved. And he was grieved at the wickedness in man's heart. He was grieved at what sin does. Sin, although pleasurable for a season, leads to death, as it says in James 1.15. He was grieved because we have hearts that desire to strive after useless idols. Now you may be thinking, I don't have a statue or something that I have in my house. But we have many things that we put our hope in besides God. And anything that we put our hope in besides God is an idol. So let's think about just a few things. Some of the things we put our hope in is our health, our money, our family, our work, our government, our laws, our society, maybe our country, and a lot of times ourselves. Again, I want to iterate anything we put our hope in besides God is an idol. And so just to maybe illustrate this, just some examples from my own life of a few idols that I know the Lord is trying to remove from me and show me that it's only him and him alone that's truly important. So my job, just thinking about this, everybody knows that in 2020 I was laid off from my job. It reminded me that no matter what I do, I cannot control what happens at work. I will not be promoted or demoted. Uh, by the work of my hands, Get, that is all in God's control. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't work hard or do good work. Because Colossians three twenty-three and twenty-four says, "Whatever you do, do you work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." I wonder maybe if you were like me, then in some ways you're making your work an idol. Second one was my family. I think in some ways everybody knows my dad passed away in 2021 and I was just thinking about that word passed away. It's basically that his time on earth had ended because he's a Christian and now he's enjoying eternity in heaven with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He and Kristen are together. There are many other saints that have gone before us. They're enjoying their time with Christ. But it got me to think, there were times I found myself wanting to talk to my dad about different aspects of life, specifically work items, bouncing ideas off of him, or complaining about some silly corporate culture, cultural issue that's there. But it caused me to reflect And in some ways, I put my dad in a place of God. You see, I had my hope and security in my dad being able to talk to, to consult with. And in some ways, that kept me from growing up. God convicted me of this, and he's convicted me to think about how often do I go to him in prayer for advice or counsel or needs. The Lord is called Counselor in Isaiah 9.6. Why do we not go to Him? Paul encouraged us in Philippians 4, six to not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Is your hope in someone else besides God? And now maybe more current, our laws. We had two issues on the Ohio ballot recently, both to my dismay, passed. But it got me to think, is my hope in the state constitution or the national constitution? Am I relying on that to change the society or men's hearts? Am I relying on laws or social programs to fix the problem of sin? James reminds us that our works show what we believe in. So I was thinking, what are my works saying I'm putting my faith in? What does God say will change men's hearts? In Ezekiel eleven seventeen through 20 God clearly states to the nation of Israel that it is Him who will take their heart of stone out and give them a heart of flesh. In case they missed it the first time, He gives it to them again in chapter 36, where He says, "'I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean.'" I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. Those who believe God in the Old Testament did not understand how God was going to do this. How he was going to accomplish giving them a new heart. A new heart only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans ten eight through ten says this. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preached. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The writer of Hebrews gives us a great picture linking the Old Testament way of worship with the work of Christ. He said, it says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, if God is the only one who can change men's hearts, what should I be doing? I think the answer is in 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, I implore you this morning that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you consider these words this morning. He is reconciling the world to himself. There is nothing, nothing we can do in our own strength. Nothing we can do to make us right with God. It is only the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, came and died on the cross for our sins. He took our place. He took our punishment so that we might have life. So I had to ask myself, do I believe that it's only God that can change men's hearts? Or have I set up another idol in his place? I guess I want to reiterate that I, I think it's that like God's heart desires for our heart to be wholly devoted to Him. So as we go from here, let us be encouraged about who God is, that He is infinite, immense, good, just, merciful, gracious, omnipresent, Imminent and holy and as a heart for you and out of his heart, whatever flows exceeds in supply of all our needs and help this to be a driving force for our hearts to love God above all else and with all that we have. Father, we just thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Father, we see, because of who you are, how you have impacted our lives, how it shows in your heart that you love us and care for us. You provide for us. You reconcile us. You live for us. And your Son pleads for us in your presence. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We we are so undeserving of any of this. But we're thankful that we have that worth in the the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those here this morning that don't know you, that have never made a profession of faith that have never confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts, I pray for them. I pray that they would hear this message this morning and consider. Consider the the many benefits of coming to you. Help them to realize that uh, any striving that they do would will be useless. Help them also to realize that nothing they have done is greater than your grace, is greater than your forgiveness. That you will forgive no matter what they've done. And so, Father, I pray for them this morning that they would hear and consider Father, help us as we uh, go our week to be challenged to remove idols from our lives and to live wholly devoted, hearts that are wholly devoted to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.